Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. Dr. Austin Perlmutter is an internal medicine doctor who now focuses on helping people improve their health through better decisions, neuroscience, and lifestyle interventions. He is a New York Times bestselling author of Brainwash and senior director of science and clinical innovation at Big Old Health. Austin, welcome. Jason, great to see you again. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. You know, we're, we're here today to talk about a pretty interesting paper, to say the least, which came out about a week ago in Nature's Molecular Psychiatry. And this paper is getting a ton of attention because essentially what it does is cast serious doubt about the role that serotonin, specifically serotonin deficiency, plays in depression, which essentially calls into question the prescription of SSRIs for those suffering from depression. Kind of a bombshell. So I saw this paper. Quickly, I saw what you were putting on Instagram, and I thought, what you were putting out was was really interesting and smart and thought provoking. So I'm going to pause there. What do you think about the implications of this research? Well, Jason, I think we need to start with a couple of facts. One is depression is a huge deal in the United States and around the world. We're talking hundreds of millions of people right now who are suffering from clinical depression. And there are probably a lot of other hundreds of millions, if not more, people suffering from subclinical depression, meaning they don't quite meet the criteria for that diagnosis. And when we think about how that's going, we realize that even with the best therapies, which right now would be something like a SSRI or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, there's probably a third to even more people who are not really getting remission, not really getting a significant benefit. So that's kind of the state of things. And it's even worse in countries that don't have great access to care where probably 85% plus of people are not getting adequate treatment. A couple of important facts here too. More people who are suffering from depression are women, about two times more. And people diagnosed with depression, getting that diagnosis of clinical depression, tend to be younger people. 18 to 25 age range is actually the highest prevalence of depression in the United States. So Let's talk about that in the context of this paper. The idea that we've had for the last 50 plus years relies on our understanding of depression being based around molecules like serotonin. Serotonin is a monoamine. It's a type of neurotransmitter. And really in this conversation, even though there are other neurotransmitters like dopamine, norepinephrine that are involved, serotonin has been in the forefront of conversations for the last 50 or so years as the best explanation for what is driving depression in the brain. And as I mentioned, the kind of key therapeutic modalities, the prescriptions like SSRIs or SNRIs, MAOIs, TCAs, they're all kind of built around the idea that the neurotransmitter systems are off and that serotonin is off. And that by treating that serotonin, bringing up levels, increasing its function in the brain, we can treat successfully depression. So for the last 10 plus years, many people have been questioning whether serotonin is really responsible. And there are a number of other hypotheses that we can talk about 
that may explain what's going on in depression that are not independent from serotonin, but maybe different from relying on serotonin. And then you get this paper that came out, as you said, last week. So we're in July of 2022. And this paper was, in essence, a review of reviews. It was a review of the systematic reviews, a review of meta-analyses. It's called an umbrella review. And it looked at all of these other papers, and it questioned, does it make sense to make the connection between serotonin and depression? Specifically, do issues with serotonin explain what we're seeing in depression? And the conclusion from this paper, which, as you said, is getting a lot of press, was pretty clear and pretty important. And it was that serotonin does not appear to explain depression, to be a principal driver of depression. So again, there's a lot to talk about here as it relates to our therapeutic strategies, as it relates to how we explain depression in the brain. But it's an amazing opening point for, I think, some curious exploration of what is actually driving depression and what we might be getting wrong. You lead me to my next question, if not serotonin, then what's driving depression? Yeah. Well, I think to come back to this paper for a moment, uh, they looked at a couple of specific correlates of serotonin because it's hard to just say serotonin levels in the brain go up, people feel better. It's hard to kind of image to analyze levels of serotonin in a person's brain. So they tend to look at a lot of surrogates. They look at breakdown molecules that come from serotonin. They look at receptor binding for serotonin, and they look at gene mutations in those receptors. And these are the types of things they looked at in this paper. And kind of across the board, they showed there wasn't a strong connection with those pathways and depression. But Serotonin isn't just one receptor. Serotonin is actually 14 receptors, and they really focused on one specific subtype, serotonin 1 receptor. Um, that's kind of the groundwork to say that if it isn't serotonin, what else is happening? Well, there's still involvement probably from the serotonin system. But maybe what we should be looking at instead or in addition to this are systems like the immune system specifically inflammation. There's a large body of research now suggesting that higher levels of inflammation in the body, in the brain, are linked to higher risk for developing depression and are linked to more trouble getting a clinical response for people who have depression. So inflammation is one. And a couple others I'll just put out here and we can dive into whichever you feel are most relevant. One is neuroplasticity or neurotrophins. This is the idea your brain is constantly rewiring itself. This is the concept of neuroplasticity. And issues with this rewiring have been linked to depression. And improvements in this wiring have been linked to depression resolution. Uh, so interestingly, even though SSRIs are supposedly acting on serotonin alone, they may also improve neuroplasticity. So that's important to note that these drugs that we thought were all about serotonin and other neurotransmitters may actually be beneficial, but in ways we didn't previously expect. So that's number two, neuroplasticity. And then the third, which is kind of a big bucket here, uh, I kind of think about as endocrine or metabolic. And so endocrine meaning hormones, metabolic talking about how our bodies process fuel, convert that into energy. And here we talk about hormones like estrogen. Here we talk about hormones like insulin, 
uh, and especially hormones that are involved in the stress response or the HPA axis. So all of these have been implicated in depression. There's a lot of research around stress, increasing chances of developing depression. Estrogen is interesting in that what we see in women who are postmenopausal is an increase in depression that correlates with a drop in estrogen. And then insulin is something that's getting a good amount of play recently in that insulin is kind of necessary to get fuel into certain types of brain cells. Um, it also relates to the food that we eat, and it may actually relate to inflammation as it uh, relates to insulin being something that uh, is linked to our glucose, our glucose being something that is linked to our inflammatory state. So all of these are kind of different pathways that interact with serotonin, but maybe an overall better explanation for what's going on in the brain of depressed, depressed people. So in a sense, prior or, or currently, because I don't know if the medical community has adapted this <laughs> in the last week, we were looking at purely the problem being serotonin, thus treating with an SSRI. And if I'm understanding correctly, it's a couple things going on. There's four things. There's serotonin, there's inflammation, there's neuroplasticity, and then there's endocrine slash metabolic. And, and if that's the case, we're... we're using SSRIs that can be helpful with two of the four, ser serotonin and neuroplasticity, but they're not helping with inflammation and they're not helping with endocrine metabolic, which would explain why so many people go on SSRIs and they don't feel any better. Am I getting that right or? Yes and no, I would say. So one thing I want to clarify is that there's a lot of other uh, pathways involved in depression. And so people listening may say, well, uh, how does early life stressors play into this? Not just HPA, but specifically early life adversity, ACEs. Um, how do epigenetics play a role in this? How does brain wiring beyond neuroplasticity talking about networks like the default mode network, various parts of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, the hippocampus, how are those involved? And yes, all of those seem to be involved. But what we're talking about here is really molecular mechanisms of depression. What is happening at the level of the neuron, at the level of the communication between one neuron and another neuron. So that's why molecules like serotonin that send data from one neuron to another neuron are really important. And that's why the systems that I described, whether it's endocrine or inflammation or neuroplasticity, these are things that occur at the level of and influence the transmission between neurons. So let's come back to your question, which I think is a great one, this question of SSRIs and are they really working the way we think? Are they really working as well as people think? So kind of base rates of success with SSRIs, depending on the study you look at, is something between 50 and 67%. And so these are data from a range of trials. The STAR-D trial is maybe the best example, but it's the idea that if you use sequential treatments with medications like SSRIs, the majority of people will show improvement. Maybe a third or so won't get a significant improvement. So the question of do SSRIs work is, is kind of a different one. There are people on both camps there. Uh, I think the, the agreed upon consensus would be that if SSRIs work, they're not the best. And by that, I mean 50-ish percent, 40 to 50 percent with significant side effects, GI, sexual, a number of other side effects. 50-ish um, percent of people having significant withdrawal effects. And so what are these side effects or what are side effects really? These are nonspecific drugs. And by that, I mean, it's not like you take an SSRI, it goes to the brain, it increases serotonin, says, all right, job is done, I'm out. 
because you wouldn't have so many people experiencing GI effects. That doesn't make sense, right? So other things are going on when we take these drugs. They're not as selective as we would like to believe that they are. Part of this may be due to the fact that the majority of the serotonin in our bodies is actually in our gut. And so there are a lot of receptors for serotonin in our gut. But coming back to the other pathways that are involved, we talked a little bit about neuroplasticity. And SSRIs are thought to increase a molecule called BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic factor, that is essential for healthy neuroplasticity. But SSRIs also influence the immune system. This is really interesting, too. There are a number of studies that have come out looking at SSRIs in COVID, actually, as a question of, is this effective at preventing people from having worse disease? And several of these papers have shown a connection between SSRIs and better outcomes. So why would that make sense? It's because these molecules are not so selective, are actually acting on the immune system. And it's really notable, I think, that our immune cells have serotonin receptors on them. That again, the majority of the serotonin in our bodies is not in our brains, it's in our gut, and then it's in our bloodstream. So I think that the SSRIs are certainly having an effect on these other pathways. They're influencing neuroplasticity, they're influencing the immune system, and they're probably influencing those endocrine pathways as well. It's just not quite as clear exactly how. So if SSRIs are effective in many people, but there are health consequences or side effects, if you will, and we know that they're affecting the immune system in a positive way, what, what can we learn from this? How, how should, what are alternatives that we should be exploring in terms of treating depression? And does it change our view and call it the, you know, gut brain immune axis, if you will? Yeah, I, I think it, it should change that because I'll go beyond just treating depression and talk about preventing depression. Uh, I think this is hugely overlooked. Um, depression, like many medical conditions, I would say like most of these, tends to be something we only acknowledge when it gets bad enough that we feel we need help. And that's just not a good plan. Um, I think for the foreseeable future, there's no scenario in which we don't need drugs like SSRIs and even more potent psychoactive medications. Um, there are certainly scenarios in which those are the absolute best option for a person. Um, but just like a person who's coming into the ER with a heart attack, you're not going to say, okay, what we need to do is put you on a plant-based diet and we'll see you in a few months. You know, we need to be talking about why is that person having the heart attack? We need to be talking about why is that person experiencing depression? And so we need to be leveraging those strategies to ideally prevent people from having to go on a lifetime of a drug with such high rates of side effects. So that's why looking at these systems in the brain, I believe is so important because when you start to parse them out a little bit more, let's say inflammation, for example, there are lots of things that we can do besides pharmaceuticals that may influence those neuroimmune or those brain inflammatory pathways. And that's so important because now we're talking about lifestyle modification. Now we're talking about upstream or root medicine. We're talking about changing the factors that set us up for conditions like depression. So maybe we never get to depression in the first place. However, I will say there's been some very encouraging work in the last decade looking at interventional trials, randomized interventional trials for depression with diet, with lifestyle, showing benefit there. 
And so talking about things like exercise, but then diet, a Mediterranean pattern diet has been shown to be effective in a couple of randomized interventional studies at managing symptoms of depression. I think that's so important. How may that be the case? Now you're getting to those pathways. A Mediterranean pattern diet is one that emphasizes molecules that tend to be anti-inflammatory, things like polyphenols, high-quality oils. It's also one that appears to activate pathways involved with neuroplasticity. So, you know, I think for a long time, there's been this idea that there's drugs and drugs work, and then there's everything else, lifestyle stuff. And it's, well, maybe that works. I mean, it's probably good, but you know, it's food, it's not as powerful or whatever. And I think that when you can make the connections between dietary interventions, eating specific foods and activation or deactivation of these pathways that we know are involved with depression. Now, all of a sudden we're talking about medicine again. We're not just talking about, you know, uh, some healthy choices. We're talking about interventions that are targeting pathways that we believe can prevent and potentially even treat diseases like depression. So the psychiatrists of the future, you step in their office and let's say you're just really in a dark place and without question, you, you need an SSRI, you, you need something to just pick you up because people who are in a serious dark depression, it's not a good place and medication saves lives. Um, and so, okay, you've got your SSRI and now we're going to do some talk therapy to see what is there trauma? Is there something you're going through? We need to, need to, you need some, you need to talk through some of the issues you're, you're facing. And then we need to talk about lifestyle in terms of diet, exercise, sleep, stress, even nature, something you've talked about. Like that, that's the role of the site. In, in some ways, I think we're, we're still, there's some psychiatrists doing this, but catching up to where functional medicine is. And so earlier you mentioned the rise in 18 to 25 year olds in terms of depression, SSRIs. That, that seems alarming to me. And I'm, you know, maybe I'll just chalk it up to I'm an old guy. I'm 47. Uh, but I look at TikTok and I say, this is just terrible for the developing brain. Because <laughs> your brain is also developing up until we're learning more about the brain. You, 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 yeah. And, and I look at what I did in my 20s with the alcohol consumption and the drug use and the partying and everything I did. I'm like, wow, what an idiot. I'm glad I'm, I had a good time, but whoa, what an idiot. Uh, but I didn't have social media. I had a lot of good, I, I, I had a, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pull a blue zones. I had very strong social connections at 3 a.m. with my friends at, you know, bars in New York at that age. Maybe, maybe that's what kept me afloat, but I didn't have social media. I didn't have, and specifically TikTok. I, 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 I just, wow. I look at the, the engagement numbers and how it's blowing away Facebook in terms of time spent on that platform. And now Facebook is essentially, Instagram specifically is becoming TikTok. I, I just said, wow, we're in a world of hurt in terms of mental health. Or am I just oversimplifying this? So it's great to talk about the neurobiology of depression, these systems in the brains, like the neuroplasticity or serotonin hypotheses of depression. But what you're bringing up here is the real life component of this, the idea that our day-to-day -day actions are having an impact on our mental health. And so 
If you think about the fact that people today are spending the majority of their waking hours interacting with media, spending upwards of two hours, sometimes three hours a day on average, interacting with our mobile devices, and that the time that we're spending interacting with these screens tends to be on activities like social media, we have to ask, what is that doing to our brains? What is that doing to our mental health? So let's talk about specifically something like TikTok, which is interesting for a number of reasons. But there's about a billion average out uh, monthly users of the app TikTok. And there are some pretty interesting differences between TikTok and apps like Instagram and Facebook. And yes, Instagram is maybe changing their algorithms and changing their content to better mirror what's happening on TikTok because of TikTok's explosive growth. But in general, when we're talking about social media, when we're talking about this media consumption, I think it's important to think about maybe two big variables that relate to our mental health. The first one, and maybe the most important one, is that when we are doing one thing, we're not doing something else. So when we are spending our time scrolling through social media, we are not spending that time interacting with people in the real world. We're not spending that time in nature, exercising, preparing meals. And this is kind of the opportunity cost that comes with our social media consumption, with our digital media consumption. So this isn't necessarily saying that social media is bad, that TikTok is bad. What it is saying is that when you look at the research that has been done on the correlations between mental health and activities, those correlations are really strong for certain activities. They're really strong for moving your body, for spending time with people that are meaningful as far as their depth of relationships with you, that the correlation between preparing healthy food and eating healthy food and mental health is a real one. And while there's a lot of research that is a little bit nebulous as to the effects of social media on the brain, I don't think there's a lot out there saying that it's a huge net benefit for our brain function. And there's actually a decent amount saying that it's a net negative for things like mental health, especially as it relates to a certain type of media. So that's the opportunity cost. That's the we're doing one thing, we're not doing something else piece of social media. But the other piece of it is to ask, what is the quality of the content that we're getting from social media? And let me just expand this to the news that we consume. Let me just expand this to the digital media that we consume in a given day. What research has shown is that the media we consume is increasingly polarized, is designed to be stressful. And often, as it relates to social media, that stress comes from social comparison, from the part of our brain that has a really hard time doing anything other than judging ourselves based on what other people are doing. So whether they're discovering some amazing new swing set in Bali and we're stuck in our offices or eating some delicious meal in New York where we are eating some easy takeout from a local uh, store, I mean, these are the subtle things that are actually causing our brains to perceive reality in a different way. And that's not to mention the stuff that is just designed to be stressful, to activate our stress centers, our fear centers, and to get us to be a bit less uh, able to see the bigger picture and to bring on board things like empathy for other people. So 
as it relates to the connection between our increase of time spent on apps like TikTok, our increase in use of social media and mental health, the research has not been conclusive. There are certain people, there are certain studies that would say there is a connection between more social media use and worse mental health, but the nuance there is it seems to be problematic social media use. So using it at the exclusion of healthy habits, using it in a way that leads us to experience uh, stress and other negative mental states, leading us to using it in a way that really allows us to compare ourselves to other people. These are the areas where I think we really need to be focusing. And I will say something that I highly recommend is to see how you feel if you take a break from social media. And if you're really feeling a strong pull, an unhealthy pull, that's probably an indicator that the content you're consuming and that the way you're interacting with it maybe isn't so good for your mental health. And I think you summarized it you know, when we think about inputs, in so many ways, it does come back to inflammation. This is all some sort of inflammation. You know, you're talking about the news, like, is, is the news, <laughs> I think the news is a form of inflammation. <laughs> it is social media, inflammatory. Uh, and so coming back to the 18 to 25 set, do you think it's, because the inputs, whether it's what they're consuming in terms of media, what they're consuming in terms of diet, is it, is it just highly inflammatory all around? Uh, or or is, am, I, am I over general? Like, what do you think? To me, it's like, is there, is there something generational here with inputs that is fundamentally different for your inputs or my inputs? You're not as old. You're, you're, so you're a little bit older. You're not as old as me. So like, what do you think about that? So Jason, many listeners and viewers of this podcast are going to know already that there is this connection between inflammation, which is an imbalance in the immune system, and worse health outcomes. So to start really big, inflammation has been linked to increased risks for developing everything from heart disease to diabetes to depression and Alzheimer's disease. It is a very concerning thing that this imbalance in the immune system can be driving such seemingly different pathology in our bodies and in our brains. But I think we need to talk about inflammation in an even broader sense. And that's what you're bringing up here is to think about is inflammation just limited to our immune system or are we talking about inflammation as it relates to things that are generally provoking, inflammatory and it's interesting that these things kind of go hand in hand, because when you think about something that is designed to be aggressive, to be inflammatory, whether it's a statement that you put out to somebody that you're hoping makes them upset or putting forth inflammatory material on the news in an effort to polarize people to get them upset. These are things that activate the parts of our brains that release hormones, that release molecules that increase our blood pressure, increase our blood sugar, but also change our state of mind. They increase stress hormones like cortisol, and long-term exposure to this cortisol has been linked to worse brain function, specifically worse decision-making, as well as worsening of our mental health. So stress turns out to be a pathway that is linked to worse mental health, and interestingly enough here, one of the ways in which stress is linked to worse mental health is because chronic stress appears to upregulate inflammation, 
which is really interesting. Little bits of stress and even acute stressors may suppress inflammation, but chronic stress through a variety of mechanisms, which may involve glucose being high for too long or involve a downregulation of glucocorticoid receptors, stress receptors. The bottom line here being that stress appears to increase our chances of having worse mental health, especially depression, but also anxiety by way of these pathways in the brain that involve inflammation. So is inflammation involved in our epidemic of poor mental health today? I believe the answer is yes. The question is, how is it doing that? It's partially through stress. It's partially through our diet. Our diets have become increasingly pro-inflammatory. Why do we know that? It's because the various components of our diet today, especially our diet in the United States, is the standard American diet or the Western pattern diet is a pro-inflammatory diet. This is a diet that is loaded with hyper-processed foods, and that includes everything from unhealthy oils to incredibly high levels of added sugars, which, by the way, again, are added to the majority of the foods and beverages that you're going to find in your supermarket. These are things that, through a variety of pathways, are linked to increased levels of inflammation in your body and are likely increasing levels of inflammation in the brain. As one example of how this happens, it's probably by way of the gut, the gut is where the majority of the immune system is located. So if you're feeding your gut the wrong things, you are probably activating that immune system in your gut. And that immune system in the gut carries signals throughout the body. What happens in the gut also influences the brain by way of the vagus nerve and the bloodstream. So food that we're eating, inflammatory. As a couple of examples of this, people who eat a diet consistent with the standard American diet, which is one that is, again, high in ultra-processed foods, tend to have worse mental health, whereas people who eat a diet like the Mediterranean pattern diet tend to be, that is a, by the way, an anti-inflammatory style of eating where you're prioritizing whole foods, tend to have better mental health. And it is incredibly notable that there have now been several interventional trials showing that when depressed people are fed a Mediterranean pattern diet, in addition to some other lifestyle modification, their symptoms of depression improve. So inflammation again, number one through stress pathways, number two through diet. But there's a lot of other ways that we could conceptualize this. And one thing I will just say here is looking at relationships. Are relationships pro or anti-inflammatory? There's some really interesting psychology here as to whether your dynamics with other people are going to be pro or anti-inflammatory in the bigger picture of things. So these are all things that we need to be considering. I do think inflammation is a good term to describe a lot of the changes that are happening in our bodies, in our brains, both from a psychological level and a physiological or biological level that can contribute to worse mental health today. It's funny in the, uh, as I mentioned on the show, we recently moved to Miami. We love it here for any of our Miami friends listening. And in the gym in our building, they have TVs and they have Fox right next to CNN. And I just love watching both to give an, <laughs> to help understand what's happening in this country. Uh, I think it's eye-opening, and I encourage everyone, no matter where they stand politically, to watch both, just to understand and, and hopefully make you a little bit more empathetic to the other side. But we're not going to go there on this show. So I want to I want to close on a high note here. I don't want to close. You know, the, the, we started the episode the episode depression SSRIs. We don't want to close. We don't want to be a downer. So I always love a good a good list. Our listeners love a good list. So let's close on some good lists. So. You know, if I think of a list, I love a good grocery list. So 
what are your let, let's go to that list first what are your top five foods for brain health that we should all enjoy well i enjoy a good list too and so let me just go through a couple of big points and then we'll talk about some specific foods that i love that may help promote brain health First of all, I am a huge fan of diet over specific foods as it relates to long-term health. When we're talking about the changes that are going to be most influential on our health, we're talking about long-term sustainable dietary changes. That is what has been studied and that is what best correlates with long-term health outcomes, including mental and brain health outcomes. So generally speaking, I know I mentioned this before, I'm a huge fan of a diet that prioritizes unprocessed foods. If your food needs an ingredient list and a nutrition fact, maybe you should look for something that has less ingredients. So eating a plant or even eating a piece of animal protein, if you're buying a piece of fish, it's a fish. If you're buying a broccoli, it's a broccoli. This is a great way to be prioritizing the nutrients, the foods that have been linked to better brain health. And to that end, I'm a huge fan of shopping on the periphery of the supermarket as opposed to all of the stuff that gets clumped up in the middle that tends to be highly processed and probably not so good for your brain health. So that's the general background. Let's now talk about my top five foods as it relates to brain health. Number one on my list is going to be small cold water fatty fish. And so this is a group of fish that includes salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, and herring. You can remember those using the SMASH mnemonic, S-M-A-S-H. And the reason that these fish are especially relevant to brain health is that they're rich in omega-3 fats. Now, when you're looking at brain function, many people have described in the research the fact that omega-3s are highly prioritized in our brain relative to other parts of our bodies. Omega-3s also are involved with the immune response. So talking about here the inflammatory component of brain diseases, including mental health problems, it's been thought that omega-3s and specifically dietary consumption of omega-3s may be a way to help offset inflammatory damage to the brain. One reason to consider smaller fish, which I guess salmon are a little bit bigger, is because they tend not to bioaccumulate things like mercury, and they're a little bit more sustainable long-term for the environment, rather than taking out bigger fish, which may still have omega-3s, but take a lot longer to grow. So number one, small, cold water, and fatty fish. S-M-A-S-H, salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, and herring. Let's go to number two. I'm going to group two things together here, and that is dark leafy greens, and cruciferous vegetables. So why should we be prioritizing these types of vegetables? Well, these tend to be vegetables that are incredibly rich in vitamins, minerals, as well as plant nutrients like polyphenols. So generally speaking, there are a lot of dark leafy green vegetables, collard greens, kale, uh, you could talk about Swiss chard. Um, you know what a dark leafy green looks like when you see it. Different people have different preferences as far as which ones they enjoy. Crucifers are a large family of vegetables that overlaps a bit with our dark leafy greens, but broccoli and cauliflower, Romanesco, Brussels sprouts, these are all great examples of crucifers. And generally speaking again here, these are vegetables that are a part of a many of these diets that have been associated with longevity, with better brain health. So trying to prioritize a couple of these types of vegetables each day in your diet is a great step for brain health.
Now, let's do a couple more. Number three on my list would be nuts. I'm a huge fan of nuts, and I should say seeds. And the reason for this is because they are incredibly uh, packed with the nutrients that have been linked to better brain health. So you will get some omegas. These are slightly different from the omegas you're going to get from those fish. So these are more precursor omegas. Um, but you're also going to get a lot of protein, a lot of healthy fats besides the omegas, some vitamins, some minerals, and nuts just tend to be one of those things that have been linked to a variety of positive health outcomes, including better mental health. So I am a big fan of having them on hand so that you are making sure that if you're super hungry, you don't have to turn to that ultra processed snack. You can just grab a handful of nuts and seeds and and it's also a great thing to add to meals like salads. I'm a big fan of toasted pumpkin seeds. Okay, let's do one or two more here. So we've covered so far the fish, we've covered the vegetables, we've covered the nuts and seeds. One interesting area of research that might be worth noting here is that there's a difference in our fruits as far as which ones tend to be highest in sugars and which ones tend to be highest in nutrients that have been linked to brain health. So while many people just say eat more fruits and vegetables, I think there is a big difference in the quality of the nutrients we're getting if you're eating something like a super sugary melon versus eating something like a blueberry. And so there's actually some evidence that eating these less sugary foods or less sugary fruits like blueberries and other berries may actually be a better overall choice for metabolic health, and it may actually be better for brain health. Again, when you think about the nutrients that are in these fruits, especially fruits like blueberries, they're incredibly concentrated in specific plant nutrients called polyphenols. And notably, consumption of polyphenols has been linked to longevity. It's also been linked to better mental health. So in general, it does seem like we want to be getting more of these polyphenols in our diet. So that's number four. And I think to kind of bring it home, let's stay on the subject of polyphenols. Now, again, polyphenols are a nutrient that are found in plant-based foods, and they tend to be concentrated in certain types of plant-based foods. Those usually are colorful fruits and vegetables. Those dark leafy greens are going to have a lot of polyphenols, but there's also some unique plants that tend to be high in polyphenols for other reasons, mostly because they needed to increase their levels to defend themselves against environmental stressors. And here I've been working with a plant called Himalayan tartary buckwheat, which is actually not anything related to wheat, but it turns out that this plant is exceptionally high in certain polyphenols like rutin and quercetin that have been linked to overall health. And so we're actually conducting some clinical research right now to look at how these polyphenols are influencing human health through the epigenome. So more on that later, but I'd put that at number five on my list. And I hope that some of these at least are accessible to most people. I love it. And I have to comment and please pass this on to Jeff. So I've been, I've been experimenting with your, your, your buckwheat at home because our, our girls who are young you know, when they want a snack, they love perfect bars, you know, perfect bars are, are great, but you know, I always believe that there's, there are better options. And so I've been, I'll have to share the recipe. I take a little bit of the buckwheat, a little bit of flaxseed, some nut butter, some peanut butter. Uh, I do the who chocolate gems and a little bit of honey. And I make my own version and a little bit of monk fruit. I gotta give a little something my own personal version of, you know, homemade perfect bars, if you will, and it totally works. It, it's, 
it's kind of awesome. Yeah. And like, I'm, I'm doing it with the, with, with the big bowl of health, uh, Himalayan and tardy buckwheat. And it's awesome. So I have to share the exact, exact recipe. I'll put it in the show notes and please tell Jeff, but like our, our girls are loving it and I love it. I'm making it every day now. Austin, thank you so much. Jason, great to see you again. Thanks for having me.